0: Welcome to a special bonus edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harreld.
1: Um, And I like to use the word franchise to refer to them because it's a lot like, you know, a restaurant franchise or hotel franchise where it's kind of, you know, they take the branding of that global brand, but they're still kind of under local management and leadership and they still kind of had their, their, you know, their local goals and, and fights in mind.
0: Scott Stewart is Vice President of Intelligence at Torchstone Global and has been a recognized terrorism and security analyst and expert for over 36 years. His former experiences include Special Agent for the U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Security Service and Tactical All-Source Intelligence Officer for the
1: U.S. Army Reserve.
0: Mr. Scott Stewart, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend.
1: Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to be with you again.
0: Always good to speak with
1: you. You always give us
0: real-time information that's very useful. Today's topic. The jihadist movement, 20 years after September 11th. Has it been 20 years, first of all? Wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it, it does seem like just yesterday, uh, you know, we were watching that, that live feed of, uh, you know, the, the towers crumbling, the planes crashing into the towers, um, and, you know, and just remember the feeling that we had in the wake of that with, you know, people saying, we'll never be the same, uh, you know, America will never be the same, the world will never be the same. Uh, But really, in in many ways, you know, we'll never forget. Uh, But that's really gone away, hasn't it? Uh, You know, we've kind of gone back to a very, uh, you know, just much of the same type of stuff we saw going on in 2000, just with, you know, the the domestic uh, squabbling and politics and, you know, the international geopolitics. Uh, So really, uh, despite that traumatic event and, and the declarations that everything was going to be different. We're really back to, you know, what we were before the attacks.
0: You know, I'm going to agree with you on that. Uh, but here's the little secret, uh, that people forget. Uh, I think the September 11th was more successful, uh, than people think because people will say, well, they never had a second successful attack. That's right. They had 39 of them. <laughs> they had 39 attacks worldwide, uh, Basically, two major attacks a year worldwide. Now, maybe the United States didn't get whacked on a big event, but we got we got whacked on smaller events like the uh, military base attacks, those kind of things by lone wolves. And out of those 20, uh, 39 attacks, sixteen were the grassroots type of guy, the lone wolf uh, sort of guy. What is the current state of Al Qaeda?
1: Yeah, I, I, the way that I try to look at, I mean, j- just to kind of even take it one step up, is the jihadist movement, is we need to understand that really the jihadist movement is multifaceted, and it's not just, you know, some sort of single hierarchical thing, um, and, and it really always has been. If you go back to even bin Laden's initial declaration of war, you know, against the United States in the West, uh, you know, it was signed by a number of, of different jihadist leaders, uh, you know, fr- from the region. So it's always been kind of a, a multipolar polar type uh, movement. It's, it's never been single and unified, but certainly after 9-11, we saw Al-Qaeda raise, you know, their stature to kind of become uh, the vanguard, if you will, of, of the jihadist movement, uh, and certainly kind of the hot brand. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, you know, what, what had been a, a pretty small organization Um, you know, just a few hundred guys in the the Al-Qaeda core quickly expanded uh, beyond just that core to kind of like an Al-Qaeda brand, if you will, uh, or really like a franchise. And as the kind of the, you know, the sexy uh, brand of jihad, we saw a lot of, you know, kind of regional or local groups kind of grab onto that name. Uh, And so we saw groups like the GSPC in Algeria, uh, become Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, we saw groups in Yemen and uh, in, in Saudi Arabia uh, become, you know, an Al Qaeda brand. Uh, we even saw, uh, you know, groups in Iraq uh, become Al Qaeda, uh, you know, in the land of the two rivers, or Al Qaeda in Iraq. So we kind of had this this expansion beyond just the core to kind of, you know, this 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 network of Al Qaeda with, with all these kind of regional franchise groups. Um, and I like to use the, the word franchise to refer to them because it, it's a lot like, you know, a restaurant franchise or hotel franchise, where it's kind of, you know, they take the branding of that global brand, but they're still kind of under local management and leadership, and they still kind of had their, their you know, their local goals and and fights in mind. Um, of course, you know, in, in the years after 9-11, we, we saw that the United States become very successful in fighting against Al Qaeda and, and really limiting the ability of the core to do much. Um, and we, we saw most of the attacks after 9-11 uh, against the US and the West were you know, conducted by these franchise groups that were out and about. Uh, we, we did have some plots coming from the core, but most of those were uh, you know, thwarted by, by the Americans. And in response to their lack of success, Uh, we saw the al-Qaeda pole, or, or, you know, chunk of the jihadist movement uh, start to uh, really promote a leaderless resistance style of of jihad or, uh, you know, a a do-it-yourself jihad, if you will. And, uh, you know, the first people that we saw kind of grab onto that concept was al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. Um, And we we saw people such as Amwar al Alaki, who was actually a... uh, you know, from you know, many parents, but born in, in, in America, and you know, a, a fluent English speaker, uh, really started promoting uh, that do-it-yourself jihad. And uh, you know, we had those attacks, you know, back in 2009, things like uh, the one in Little Rock, Arkansas, against a, a recruiting center. Then we had the, the Fort Hood shooting, and those those attacks were directly you know connected to al awlaki and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And then, kind of as a result of that success. Uh, We saw them begin to uh, produce the Inspire magazine, uh, which was intended to kind of radicalize people and then equip them to conduct their own jihad. And so we we had these features uh, such as uh, how how to build a bomb in the kitchen of your mom type thing. Uh, And and then as that started getting uh, some traction and we started seeing attacks, you know, from these lone attackers and small cells. Uh, we also saw then the Al-Qaeda core grab onto that, uh, you know, that, that concept of, of this leaderless jihad. And so they also began telling people in videos to, you know, hey, go out to the gun show, buy a gun and start killing people. Um, so so that, that, you know, because of that, we ended up kind of with a third layer uh, of the Al-Qaeda poll, uh, which was kind of the, the grassroots jihadists. Um, so, you know, when we look at Al Qaeda, then we, we have that, that, that three kind of, uh, three different cones of Al Qaeda. You have the core, you have all those regional franchises, and then of course you have the grassroots jihadis. And so as we look at, at, you know, Al Qaeda and try to gauge them and their chunk of, of the jihad, that's how we kind of look at it. And we do the same thing actually for the Islamic state, by the way. Uh, you know, we look at their core organization in Syria and Iraq we look at their franchises and then also their grassroots. Um, so a, as we pick it apart, that's really the, the model I use to, to look at, at the jihadist movement.
0: You know, the way you explain things, Scott, it is so clear. I just picture this chart in my head, uh, and the franchise model is a brilliant way to describe it. Let's define the Islamic State. I think most people think that's a generic term. It's actually the state of Iraq, it's a physical place in one way, and it's also a concept and a movement. Uh, Flush that out for us a little bit. That's a very interesting uh, development.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, ju- ju- you know, to take a, a step back again, when we, when we you know, we're thinking about the jihadist movement and we talk about that, you know, the kind of the adaptation of uh, these regional groups, you know, taking on the al-Qaeda branding, you know, some of the groups were closer to al-Qaeda ideologically than others so you know for example al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula or al- al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb in, in, in algeria they were very tightly tied to bin laden and the core leadership uh both through kind of you know friendship links and relational links but but ideologically closer um you know some of the other franchises the the, the relationship was a little bit more fraught and tense and, and one of those was with abu musab al zarqawi um, and his Tawee Wild Jihad group in Iraq. Um, you know, While they did become Al Qaeda in the land of the two rivers or Al Qaeda in Iraq, uh, there was always tension between them uh, and the Al Qaeda leadership. Um, and especially as they got much more active and in many ways um, they started you know, grabbing a lot of attention and a lot of funding as they were, were you know spinning up their operations inside Iraq against the Americans there, um, so it also there was some jealousy involved, um, you know, a, a, as far as you know, hey, you guys are getting all the money and attention, but also there was there were some tactical differences um, in that uh, the Al Qaeda core did not like the way that Al Qaeda in Iraq was was killing Muslims uh, specifically, um, you know, and, and kind of. Uh, also just the, the sheer brutality of some of the videos they were making you know beheading people and and you know just these over the top violent uh, you know type videos and um, so they actually kind of reprimanded Abu Mus- Musab al-Zarqawi for that and saying hey man you know they're calling you the prince of the slaughterers you need to tone it down some and, and stop killing muslims but but that just kind of increased the tension between the two groups and that's you know kind of really played into the split we saw later in, in 2013, uh, when the Islamic state broke away from, and, and, uh, there was a step in between there, by the way, when Al Qaeda in Iraq became known as, uh, the Islamic state in Iraq, uh, where they, you know, basically tried to establish a little emirate, uh, you know, there in Iraq. Um, and then later as they were having some success spreading into Syria, uh, that's when they became known as the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham or, or ISIS, uh, if you will. Um, and then later, they just decided to call themselves the Islamic State uh, because they were going to redeclare uh, the caliphate or this global uh, jihadist entity or Islamic entity. And basically, they declared that their leader was the leader of all Muslims globally. And everybody basically had to pledge allegiance to him follow him and do what he said um and you know obviously that was after the break with al-qaeda um and so you know we we had that separation initially the islamic state had a lot of uh, a lot of success on the battlefield you know they conquered a very large section of syria uh they used the gains and the weapons and the manpower uh, from syria then to come back into iraq uh and they were kind of like a tidal wave going in and and just taking over cities, even, you know, large cities such as Mosul. Um, And that gave them a lot of spoils in in terms of weapons, in terms of manpower, taxation, money. Uh, So they became very powerful and very rich. And of course, that kind of also grabbed a lot of attention for them on the stage. And so we saw other groups, other jihadist groups become Islamic State franchises, Uh, much as earlier we'd seen them become Al-Qaeda franchises. You know, they wanted to grab onto the branding, if you will, of this this new sexy Islamic State uh, brand of jihad. Uh, And so basically when we look at at the Islamic State, the the structure of their section of the jihadist movement is very similar to Al-Qaeda. You have the Islamic State core organization that's operating in, in, in Iraq and Syria. Then you have these franchise groups in places like you know Nigeria, uh, Afghanistan, etc., and then you have the grassroots jihadis who respond to the Islamic State's calls to kind of conduct attacks where they live and, and you know simple attacks. And so that's really where we stand today as far as uh, you know the, the, the jihadist movement. There are these two major poles: uh, the Islamic State poll the al-, al Qaeda poll and then you have some you know uh, smaller groups that kind of. Uh, you know, don't really fit in the mold, but they're still jihadis as well. So it, it continues to be very diverse, uh, and it continues to be very active and widespread. Uh, you know, we see jihadist activity across a huge uh, arc of the world. Uh, you know, from Indonesia really into uh, West Africa, and then of course we have these grassroots jihadists uh, all over the globe. Uh, you know, in, in the United States, in Europe, Australia, et cetera.
0: Let's talk about optics. I think a lot of people would would adopt the position that Scott Stewart has got this. He's paying attention for me. I think everything's under control. But when I look at things like the Fort Hood shooting, uh, San Bernardino attack, the Pulse nightclub in Florida, what was that? The weather one, the uh, the Berlin Berlin, uh, the truck in uh, in Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. If you watch yes, the that, news, that Christmas market. Yeah, if you watch the news, you might just think, uh, well. That's not related to Al-Qaeda because they don't really come out and say that. They don't come out and say this is Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. They say these are loan operators and stuff. Clearly, people in the know understand that it is. Are we running the risk of having poor optics in this part of, of, of our business where the average security partitioner kind of puts this on the back burner and doesn't pay attention to it? Because, A, they think these are not related incidents when, in fact, the way you describe the franchises and the web of connections, it's really all related.
1: You know, it, it absolutely is all related, and in, in many cases, you know, these guys will, um, you know, make uh, kind of their, their wills or their video declarations, or even in the Pulse nightclub case, we saw the, you know, the shooter called up nine one one and pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. Um, so so it, it really is all related. The, the, the good news, though, um, is that we have seen, at, at least in the West, and especially in, in the United States, We've seen this this transformation of what the jihadists can do. Um, and, you know, they have really struggled to to get professional jihadist you know terrorists, guys that have high level of terrorist tradecraft and can conduct more spectacular attacks. They've had problems getting those guys into the United States, um, just because of of the efforts that the American uh, you know intelligence law enforcement uh, uh, agencies have put into securing the homeland from those sorts of attacks. And so that's why we've seen that kind of move towards, you know these, these grassroots attacks. Now we did see the Islamic State able to get some professional cadre into Paris for those Paris attacks back in 2015. But other than that, you know they've kind of struggled also to export, you know, th- their, their uh, terrorist capability. So what we're seeing at the present time for the core groups, they, you know, they remain uh, significant kind of insurgent fighters and and have a a terrorist capability within kind of their their areas of operation at the core. But they're struggling to get the professional terrorists, uh, you know, abroad. But of course, that that doesn't mean that the threat's going away. Uh, You know, it persists. and, And obviously, They would like to be able to attack uh, the homeland with a spectacular attack again, Um, but they've just been very constrained in their ability to do so. I I think that you know, if if you go through and you read uh, the the documents that were recovered ten years ago when Bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad, uh, Afghanistan, it became very clear that they were struggling, uh, you know, to to get the the professional terrorists abroad to do the spectacular attacks, Um, but. You know the threat does remain. The grassroots threat remains, uh, and it's something that we we need to be aware of, and, and we need to continue to guard against. The good news is, though, for practitioners, is that you know the, the complexion of the threat you know has changed. Um, what we're looking at now are less capable operatives, um, and certainly they can kill people. Um, and we have seen them, you know, rack up some some pretty high death counts uh, in places like Orlando or San Bernardino or Paris. Uh, but but still, uh, you know, they struggle for for, you know, uh, spectacular attacks. Um, and this has kind of led them to change their targeting. You know, when we look at the 9-11 attacks, Al Qaeda core was sending these professional terrorist operatives to attack really the heart of American uh, you know, economic power in the Trade Center, uh, military power in the Pentagon, and of course, the government power in, in trying to, to drive the other plane into the capital. Um, but now what we're seeing is these grassroots jihadis, you know, hitting a disco in Orlando or an office party in San Bernardino or a soft target, uh, you know, like the Boston Marathon and the crowds at the Boston Marathon. So. Uh, you know, at, at the same time that, that we have these less sophisticated operatives, um, you know, they're attacking softer targets. And that makes it in one way more difficult to counter. Uh, but at the same time, as a practitioner, you can increase the security of your facility, of your people, to the point that it makes it difficult for them to attack you. Um, you know, so, so, you know, going back to that old adage about you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to be able to outrun the guy next to you. Uh, we've seen several cases uh, with these grassroots jihadis where they have uh, purposefully bypassed targets because the security was too good. Uh, you know, going back to the Pulse nightclub shooting, we know that 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 killer looked at several targets before settling on the Pulse nightclub and he bypassed those targets because security was too hard. Uh, we had a, a, a Syrian... Uh, in Pittsburgh, who is looking at at hitting some uh, religious targets. Actually, he initially wanted to hit a Shia mosque in Pittsburgh, but decided their security was too good. And so he decided to hit this small church uh, that that had, you know, uh, basically Nigerians there. He was going to do it in, uh, you know, kind of do that attack to support uh, Islamic State, West Africa province, you know, the guys they, they know, they call Boko Haram or were called Boko Haram. Um, so we see these guys diverting to softer targets. Uh, so, from a practitioner standpoint, uh, you know we need to understand that that all these guys are bound to the the terrorist attack cycle. They tend to possess very little in the way of good terrorist tradecraft, and so they are very vulnerable to detection as they progress through their their attack uh, cycle. Uh, if you're looking for them, and you can harden your facilities to the point where they will divert away from you. So, so that's kind of the good news in, in where we stand today as far as the jihadist threat and the main jihadist threat in the United States.
0: Scott, let's uh, let's move to domestic terrorism. On one side, uh, we have the uh, extreme environmentalists that will you know blow up a whole bunch of Humvees because it's polluting the planet. Uh, and they've killed people uh, for sure. And the other side, we have, let's say, uh, the skinheads and those sort of things. They all kind of use very similar techniques to recruit uh, grassroots uh, action, don't they? It's very similar to uh, the Islamic State and Al Qaeda.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, w- what we've seen come down, and I think it's important, just just if I could put in just a minute here, when we look at leaderless resistance, it's really an admission of weakness. It's really only a model of terrorism that you adopt if you can't go at you know, using large units kind of thing, you know, kind of going up the insurgency scale. So it's really a, a, you know, an admission that, that you're weak and that law enforcement is doing a good job in countering your efforts. And that's why we saw, for example, the white supremacist movement adopt white, uh, the, this leaderless resistance model back in the 1980s after the Fort Smith, Arkansas trial. Um, while the, the, the leaders who were being tried for sedition in that trial, were were ultimately acquitted. One of the things that the trial showed is that these groups had been thoroughly uh, infiltrated by the FBI and other law enforcement, and so that was kind of a wake up call to these white supremacist leaders that hey, you know, if we try to plan anything formally through our organization, we're going to get busted. And, and certainly, you know, even more recently, when you see these groups like uh, uh, Adam Waffen or the Base who have tried to operate on a larger, uh, more hierarchical scale uh, for, for terrorist operations, you know, they've been busted. Uh, even the, the, the plot against the governor in Michigan, uh, you know, that got busted. And so uh, you know, we've really seen uh, over the years, uh, the white supremacists uh, and, and other you know, militia groups and, and types have gone towards that leaderless resistance model because of you know, law enforcement success operating against them. And of course, the anarchists and environmental radicals have done the same thing. Uh, when we had groups like, you know, the Animal Liberation Front or Earth Liberation Front, their whole idea was that uh, you know you would have these kind of formal organs of information providing targeting information, but then you know the attacks, the arsons, etc., were all supposed to be taken by you know lone individuals or these you know small affinity groups. So it really is the same. A uh, level of threat uh, that that we see on the jihadist side, and of course, it has the same problems, right? I mean, operating under leaderless resistance gives you great operational security, but it, it you know, they tend to have very poor terrorist tradecraft, and that limits their ability, um, you know, to conduct attacks. It makes them very vulnerable as they go through their attack cycle, and so we've seen, you know, a lot of plots, uh, whether it was the anarchists trying to blow up bridges in Cleveland. Or, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, there again, the, the, the Michigan uh, governor plot, we've seen the, these plots rolled up just because of the lack of professionalism uh, that, that these people have working under the, you know, leaderless resistance model.
0: Now I hear what you're saying about the lack of success. And if we define success by blowing things up, I get that part. But let me tell you why I think they're successful. Back in 2005, I came across some threats to uh, Michael Eisner when I was working at Disney. I was in charge of security. And I started looking at these websites that, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, I'm not going to repeat it, but you know, you know what they called him mm-hmm. and know what they think of him, and, and uh, let's call those the Islamic sites, right? But when I started digging into this, I started finding the language on the Islamics, Islamic sites of this hatred. I found the exact language. And when I say exact, Scott, I mean verbatim. That language, mm-hmm. that hate language, were on the sites of the skinheads. Now, I said, wait a minute, how can what a coincidence that is. How can we have these same statements, manifestos, and things uh, of hatred on two s- groups that, in theory, hate each other, right? Mm-hmm. These are two groups that aren't pals. So when I started digging into this and looking at it, I found that all these websites were registered to some guy in London. One guy in London had all these websites registered to him, maybe half a dozen or a dozen and that connection came back to Saudi Arabia, ultimately. I don't know who this guy was. I passed it off to Interpol. I don't know what they did with it. I found that interesting. I think there is a level of success going on behind the scenes where people in groups like this are stirring the pot, and that is very successful. And certainly, we saw this in the last election cycle, right? What, what, what do you think about that? Is, is there stuff going on that, that is a the manipulation level that falls short of blowing things up?
1: No, I, I, th- I think that, that you're on to something very important, is the, the importance of ideology to terrorism. Um, and certainly there's a long history of outside meddling in the United States in that realm. Uh, you know, even going back to like, you know, the, the, the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, we saw the Soviet Union at that point. Uh, you know, they were kind of uh, funding, if you will, all sides against the middle. Um, You know, they were promoting these communist groups. Uh, They were funding people like Farrakhan. They were funding people, uh, you know, like the Black Panthers. But at the same time, they were sending funding into uh, George Lincoln and Rockwell and the Nazi Party. Um, You know, they were just trying to play all ends against the middle to do what they could to destabilize the United States and to cause problems. And certainly we've seen that continue with Russia today. Um, you know, if you look at groups such as the base and, and the base, uh, you know, speaking of that crossover between white supremacism, uh, you know, and jihadism, uh, the base is what Al Qaeda means in Arabic. It means the base. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of uh, emulation there as far as, you know, tactics and ideology, especially when it comes to, you know, anti-Semitic uh tropes and and language uh so you know there has been that uh you know that interplay there and certainly uh you know countries and and intelligence services belonging to say russia iran china etc it is in their interest to sow discord within the united states and to do everything they can to foster radicalism in an attempt to you know help destabilize the United States and cause us to focus inward instead of outward on what they're doing in the wider world.
0: Scott Stewart, Vice President of Intelligence for Torchstone Global. Mr. Scott, always good information, my friend. Always good information from you. Thank you so much for coming on Security
1: Management Highlights. Hey, thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great talking with you, my friend.
0: Only a few days after our initial conversation, the situation in the Middle East rapidly changed after the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. Scott Stewart and I reconnected to discuss this news and what it might mean for security professionals and the terrorism outlook moving forward. Since we talked a couple days ago, we need an update on the current state of Afghanistan. Things have changed rapidly. Tell us what's going on in in theater.
1: Well, obviously, we saw the Taliban sweep through Afghanistan pretty quickly. Um, One of the interesting things I think is really important to focus on is it really wasn't as much of a military campaign as it really was a political campaign. Uh, They almost used the tactics of the Mexican drug cartels, you know, plata or plomo, Uh, you know, take my silver or take my lead. And they kind of, you know, bribed and threatened their way into power across almost all of Afghanistan at this point. Uh, It's a rapidly changing uh, environment on the ground, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it develops both in, in the near and short term. Ah, uh, we're seeing the the Afghan Taliban trying to kind of conduct this charm offensive., uh, you know, they're, they're they're saying that they're new and improved. They're gonna do things differently, not be as brutal and harsh as they were last time. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're we're getting reports in from the ground of them going house to house in certain places uh, and and, you know, basically executing or arresting people. Um so there's some some dual messaging there, and it's going to be important just to watch and see, how things develop. And of course, how things develop is going to matter a lot for organizations with people or operations in Afghanistan.
0: Now, is any of this surprising to you? It's surprising to me, but is this kind of the way we we do things when we exit theater? Um, Or were we a little taken by
1: surprise by this? Chuck, no one is is uh, surprised that that I've talked to or am aware of that the Taliban came back to power. But I think what is surprising was the timetable, Uh, and and it does appear that everyone, to include the White House and the Pentagon, uh, were shocked by the the rapid way that they were able to kind of conduct this uh, political offensive, as I'll call it, uh, to to reconquer Afghanistan. Um, And this kind of ended up with a a real issue, uh, you know, at the airport as as we're currently watching. Uh, You know, people and and the the U.S. military trying to get people out of Afghanistan through through the airport. Uh, You know, it's just created a a immediate crisis because of the rapidity of uh, the operation. But certainly, I think almost everybody expected them to eventually come back to power.
0: You know, it did seem rapid to me, but was it really rapid? Uh, You know, former President Trump was talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan. We've been talking about this withdrawal strategy. It seems to me they've been getting ready for this. Am I
1: wrong? No, absolutely. Uh, they, if the, and, you know, and that's what we see with this this campaign that's happened. They did a lot of preparation. Uh, you know, this was a lot of politics, a lot of negotiation, a lot of payoffs, uh, and they have been working at this for years, uh, not just months. And they've had, you know, by those announcements that they've had, uh, you know, with, with knowing that the U.S. was going to withdraw, that really also allowed them to place more pressure on the people that they were threatening or bribing. Uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, we'll give you this amnesty, we'll give you this cash, uh, you gotta, you know, roll over for us uh, because the Americans are leaving and once they leave, uh, you know, we're gonna own you. So it really does seem there was a lot of pragmatism on the part of, uh, you know, some of the Afghani warlords uh, and, and even some of the army officers. The interesting thing going forward is to see you know how this does play out. You know are all of these uh, warlords, guys like Hek Mardiar who's you know, basically been there forever, uh, right now he's making nice with the Taliban. But is that relationship going to become strained? Is it going to fracture? Is he going to go back on the war path? So there's a lot of moving picture a lot of moving pieces there. There are a lot of fault lines in Afghanistan and it's going to be interesting to watch the tensions along those fault lines, whether they're ethnic fault lines, religious fault lines. Um, or even, uh, you know, really more of, uh, you know, the, the the more modern Afghans now versus these more traditional Taliban. So it, it's going to be very important to watch this tapestry of fault lines and see how the tensions build and how this plays out.
0: Who is in immediate danger right now? There's so many players in this. It's hard for I think the average person to understand what the immediate peril is. I, I see these images of these planes trying to evacuate and these poor people grabbing onto the plane, and I. I just have a lot of empathy for them. Uh, are they part of the political landscape, operational landscape? Or who who is in most uh, danger right now?
1: Well, I'm, I'm really when we, we think about who the most in danger, they're going to be the people that worked uh, with the Americans, uh, with the other NATO allies uh, inside of, of Afghanistan. They're going to be people who were uh, in the government intelligence services or the special forces. Um, you know, the people that were particularly hated. By the Taliban, Uh, they're the people who have been, uh, you know, kind of campaigning for women's rights, Uh, they're the or or other rights, uh, you know, in in Afghanistan. So I I think that that those uh, kind of modernizers, anybody that worked, uh, you know, in intelligence, people that worked with the Americans or, or the other NATO countries, they're all ones that are going to be first on the chopping block. And those are the reports, the kind of people, when we hear the reports of the Taliban going house to house in certain cities, those are the type of people that are being rounded up or executed.
0: Have we reset the clock on this? Are we going all the way back to day one, 20 years ago and starting this whole thing over again? It seems like
1: all the gains have been lost. Yes and no. Um, One of the things that that I I do strongly believe is that the, the Taliban did learn a lesson out of 2001. I think a lot of people miss the fact uh, that, that while the Taliban has, has worked closely with Al-Qaeda, there's always been tension there. Um, you know, even before the 9-11 attacks, there was tension between Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban and Osama bin Laden. Uh, Mullah Omar and, and the Taliban leadership thought that bin Laden had too high a profile. Uh, they were not happy with him doing these. You know, remember the ABC uh, you know news interviews with Peter Bergen and, and things like that. They, they did not like those, uh, that, that sort of publicity. They didn't like the, the te- basically the, the, the heat brought on them by attacks uh, like the, the East Af- Africa Embassy bombings. Um, so th- there was tension before. The, the reason they couldn't give up bin Laden was because of the Pashtun code or, or Pashtun Wali. Uh, you know, he was their guest. They were bound uh, by basically their, their cultural values to protect him. However, they weren't really happy with him. Uh, and, and I think that because of that history, they're going to be very reluctant, uh, you know, to go and allow Afghanistan to be a real you know, launch pad for terrorism like people are talking about. So, you know, while the Taliban are coming back into power, I do think we're going to see a slightly different Taliban uh, this time. And, and I do think that they are going to uh, have a different relationship with these terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda.
0: My guest has been Scott Stewart, speaking about the situation in Afghanistan and the current state of jihadist terrorism. Mr. Scott, I know you're very busy these days with all these unfolding developments, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, my friend. And I look forward to seeing you at GSX.
1: I'll see you there, Chuck. Thanks for having me.